Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Indiana prisoner Aaron Isby-Smith, who's been held in solitary confinement for 26 years, just won his suit in federal court, in which he challenged the allegedly regular review process used to keep him in isolation. The judge ruled that the reviews were merely a formality and that the administration displayed personal animus towards Isby and, quote, showed a reckless or callous indifference to his due process rights, unquote. Isby Smith is a longtime prison militant who was targeted for his organizing but has continued to speak out. His case is precedent-setting, strengthening the position of other prisoners to challenge solitary confinement. Heat and power were finally restored just days ago to thousands of prisoners trapped inside the Metropolitan Detention Center in Brooklyn. Their plight, which lasted weeks, and featured not only the building-wide outage, but specific acts of cruelty like guards opening windows during a record cold snap, led to mass protests outside. Prisoners beat on windows, while demonstrators kept vigil continuously for days while temperatures were at record lows. Crowds attempted to storm the jail on Sunday, one of many dramatic moments that left authorities scrambling to belatedly send resources and repair workers to address the crisis. We'll feature an interview with a participant in the movement in the coming weeks, so stay tuned. And now, we finish up with Chantal, whose story of her time detained in a French immigrant retention center we've been airing the past few weeks. She tells us about the odd conditions of her release and reflects on the emotional aftermath of her time inside. Here she is. Things just really go downhill that day. Um, there had been like another Romanian woman brought in. I'm not sure what the, the deal was, but there was some different physical altercations with her and some other people from, uh, from Romania. And uh, I think to cover up the sort of like violence that was happening and like they like poured water on her and they kind of like, so she was screaming. And so then, then they told some of the cops that they, so she had like smuggled in a man like from the other side of the prison or something to the women's side and she's like so we were we were like telling her that's not okay we were like trying to kick him out and so then like all like all of the police like in the whole place are like on the women's side like busting into everyone's cells like you know like where is he where is he and we're all just like who you know and then so no you know because like not that many people speak French or know what's going on then there's all these crazy rumors it's so, like all these women like thought that there was like a band of men like trying to murder them so then I'm just like like going around trying to get all the gossip and like translating it and like you know like yeah and then and then I like go over to like the fence and trying to like talk to the men I'm just like what's going on and then they're like your eyes are beautiful and I'm like yeah but what's going on you know and they're like what and I'm like okay nothing's going on and then, like, an hour later, it's, like, dark, and the power goes off, and everyone starts screaming, and I freak a bunch of people out, because I, like, went running out to the yard to see, like, if, you know, if the gates were working, because like, if people were going to bust out, I was at least going to watch, you know? But no, no one busted out. Well, yeah, the next day, on, on Monday, was the last chance. This far-reaching opportunity where we could appeal specifically this decision by the police commissioner to 
designate me as a menace to the public order, which which carried the ban. So if we could appeal the ban to the Schengen zone and get that revoked, then that would mean that I was not a menace to the public order, in fact, and then they ha would have no grounds to detain me. They could let me free. And so we go, and my you know my friends are in France and met me there, and you know I was there with my friend from Angola, and so we were speaking Portuguese, and we were kind of like just waiting, doing doing the motions. And my lawyer, my actual lawyer, was there for the first time, and I met her. Up to then, it had been court appointed or assistants, and so she basically was like very very conservative judge. We don't have much of a hope, and also the police have falsified all of these documents. So now there's an entire police file against you. There's a cop claiming that he saw you um, breaking a window. You know, like everything is stacked against you. So we don't have much hope, but, you know, you have all the details. You have another flight home. Um, we'll give it our best shot. And she gave me a wonderful defense, very animated. The French court system is very theatrical. All the lawyers wear these like silk robes and it's like, like with like, you know, the, the white fluff and black silk and basically she appealed to the judge on you know me being like a, a well-intentioned but stupid american that had the misfortune of making this decision that led me here but you know, you know 26 and to be denied access to like a very long list of countries uh which she read the entirety of and would just be absurd etc i actually did not speak at this hearing i just stood there and so he deliberated for a few hours and came back and said that everything was canceled that uh, everything, I mean, really, that's the direct translation, that everything was canceled and that I was free. And so no ban. I was actually awarded 800 euro directly to my lawyer to pay her fees for essentially a wrongful incarceration. And then also the state was, the st one part of the state fined another part of the state 1,500 euros <laughs> because of like all of the, the errors that had been made. And yeah, I was given my passport and I walked out of the courthouse, which was in Milan, also, uh, very, also far away, like an hour and a half, two hours from the retention center. But yeah, um, yeah, I walked out across the Joan of Arc bridge and <laughs> took the subway back to Paris. So a lot of my lingering thoughts, I don't know, there's a few things that are like really, that are still with me, which is this complete hollowing out of desire that I experienced while there and I and I felt other people also experiencing that was like a kind of a long process for many people I think where like I just really stopped I just wanted nothing you know I, I actually never felt like I was awake or asleep like it didn't really matter especially like I was either awake or I was asleep and I, I was just like kind of in the place I was and I like I, I, was, I was I was smoking a lot of tobacco and this way that like helped me to like want or need something in some particular way but other than that like even in our discussions amongst my friends it was very difficult to get to a point where we were like this isn't you know not just details of where, where I had been or what I was going through or what I used to do but like maybe like what we wanted to do or what we were planning to do even or like what we could do when we left and then even when I was released from court you know my like dear friends were so happy and I was in shock, but very happy, but, you know, like, of course everyone wants to know, like, where are you going to go, what do you want to eat, and I, I, like, I still just wanted nothing, like, I didn't really want to eat, I didn't really want to, like, I was exhausted, I didn't want to rest, like, I just, it's just, like, it's very difficult to describe, but I just truly wanted nothing, and that's very separate from, like, wanting 
no, no one to be incarcerated. Of course, not myself. I wouldn't want, I'm definitely wanting this this place not to exist. But I don't know. That's something that I'm still like trying to understand. Just like this this sort of reality of like you know, okay, well you're free, and then it's and then it's just like free from what you know. And I, of course, it's this idea of like as long as there are other people who are in prison, like none of us are free, and like that, that's a very easy concept to understand. But it it it, it, it feels very intense, and I felt this very strong effect this very strong this very strong repressive tool which i believe we will increasingly experience and have to confront and deal with which is we will constantly be taken from our lives and our chosen situations or even our given situations we will be extracted from likely and, and many times violently by the state and put into a completely new situation where we will make our own lives and communities and processes of existing uh, and we will do that to our like fullest capacity and then we will again be completely ripped from that i think we'll, we will be constantly experiencing these cycles of loss where we lose situations and people that we didn't necessarily want but as soon as we had, were like extremely important to us. And as simple and mundane as all my plans were, I, I very truly did make plans. And I, I mean, this, the situation I was in was my life. And I'm, I'm truly bothered by not being able to complete that, to not be able to finish the commitments I had made to my friends there. I'm thinking a lot about Tijuana and the migrant camps and the border and I and I feel as though this is a large part of the situation that we will um, feel the effect of for a long time that like this compounding traumas and compounding violent extractions of bodies and when I think about the gilets jaunes you can't you know boil down any of their demands or their desires into bullet points or items to put in a shopping cart you know it's like it's not so much that you know it's not just being against or fed up with money it's about being fed up with being moved around the world as if you are money as if we are currency ourselves that are like in a system that like like we comprise but can never have any of and everything we have is only ours internally and anything we have externally like very easily taken away and so this is a, a kind of loss that I'm feeling very deeply and I'm not sure I felt before. I feel very behind now. I feel very behind in my life, but I feel very supported and I feel somehow less depressed than before I went to France, but I feel much more overwhelmed. Up next, we hear from Chris, who spoke with us about working in a Gainesville, Florida work camp. He tells us of the ins and outs of the work program in Florida as he experienced it. While there, he witnessed abuse of prisoners by guards, poor hygiene conditions, and improper work protocol, amongst many other things. Chris's story was recently used to highlight the problems with the Florida Department of Corrections work programs, and as a result of his story and the work of many, Alachua County in Florida voted to end labor contracts with the Florida Department of Corrections. Now here's Chris in his own words. My name's Christopher Frazee. I was formerly a prisoner at Gainesville Work Camp from uh, February to uh, October. It wasn't the greatest experience. <laughs> Generally, I think they have a capacity of 280 prisoners. Uh, there's usually between 260 and 270. Work life had its ups and downs, more downs than ups. Didn't get fed too well out there. Uh, it was pretty hot when we were sick. We were forced to go to work. A lot of uh, smuggling going on with the work groups, bringing into the camp. Usually if... Uh, 
you, you have a low custody, they're going to make you work because you're, you're uh, able to go out into the community. My charges were aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, so I feel fortunate that I wasn't put into what they call gladiator camps where you basically have to fend for your life just to make it day to day. Uh, and there is camps, especially in the uh, northern Florida region, that is like that. Uh, they tend to send people there as punishment. Uh, Gainesville Work Camp is racist towards uh, white people, and Lancaster is racist towards black people. There's a lot of favoritism at, at, at Gainesville Camp towards the black people. There's um, some black officers that have work squads go out, and they're all black, and then they, they have to stick at least one white person in, and, of course, the white person you know, gets the, the the raw end of the deal on those days. And let me reiterate that I am not racist in any way whatsoever. I get along very well. But it's it is it's it's just something that happens. I can't help it, you know. It it's it's kind of a forced thing. Anything we do is forced. A lot of things that they make us to do that might not be morally ethical, you know. I, I haven't really seen too much because I was out working a lot. But when I have been there, uh, for instance, when there was a prisoner uh, high on the K2 drug, completely incapacitated, no harm to anybody, one of the guards thought it would be funny to walk up to his face and just unload a can of mace right on his face when the guy was already on the ground needing an ambulance to begin with, you know. They restrict their commissary a lot. And... uh the, the prices are, are gouged, like the ramen noodles, they're ridiculously high. They'll shut down commissary before the work squads come in, and so they can't get anything to eat that might uh, help nourish their bodies because they've been lacking all day from the lack of food. Um, they feed a extremely high starch diet, which we all know is not good for the body sugar-wise and uh, doesn't leave you feeling full for very long. I could think of uh, one guy in particular that was severely mentally ill, have no idea why he made it to that camp. He should have been at a, at a, a site camp. And uh, he used to walk around in the middle of the night when we were sleeping and wasn't bothering anybody, but there was a, a, a guard that liked to pick on him, liked to pick on everybody for that matter, was very condescending to the inmates. And that guard actually picked a fight with him at night while we were all sleeping while he was walking around, and the guard called him into the showers where there was no cameras. And the guard thought he was going to beat that guy up, but the guy ended up turning it around on him, and the guy was very tiny, and uh, I was quite surprised. But the guard was actually screaming and yelling for one of our inmates to help him, and I'm surprised that the inmate helped him because that very same inmate, that guard, had him locked up in confinement not long before. My opinion... There's most of the inmates don't want to go out to work. The ones that are in prison that actually want to help themselves and want to make their time fly by love going out the gate. I myself was one of those that loved going out. I didn't care if I got paid or not. It would have been nice to make a little something to use for the commissary because I had nobody giving me money for that. If they took the work squads away completely, it's going to hurt a lot of people that really need that that time out of there to get their head straight and, and do something good for a change. It really helped my time fly. It really did. And and I can't speak for everybody, but I I really didn't care if I got paid or not. The worst part would be the, the lack of empathy. 
I can't say all the officers. I have encountered a couple that were really amazing officers. I'm very thankful that they were there in my times of need. But most of them really just didn't care. And they were slave drivers, and they were very mean about it. And we're already getting six days a month gain time, and they make a big deal. They're like, oh, you're getting 10 days gain time for your work. No, we're actually getting four days <laughs> for for uh, each month from that. So they, they make it seem like, oh, you know, you're getting this, you're getting that, but the state's already given it to us. And then if we don't want to work, they'll take you back to the camp and say, let's say we're not feeling well. Okay, you don't want to work, you can go back to the camp. And then guess what? You go to the camp, they lock you up in handcuffs, and they take you over to Lancaster, and they put you in a box for however long they want. I was out on a DOT work crew, and um, the Occupy Prisons Gainesville was out there supporting us, and they just so happened to film me and a few other inmates out there working, and I gave them a thumbs up, and I wasn't on the video more than two seconds. And uh, I ended up uh, shipped over to Lancaster Camp and uh, put in the box for 15 days with no explanation other than I was supporting a terrorist group and that uh, I was also trying to establish a relationship with the outside, outside source. So uh, eventually when the 15 days came, uh, nothing came about. I didn't lose any game time, and they sent me back to Gainesville with uh, no type of compensation. Thank you, sorry, whatever, you know. <laughs> it was pretty bad. It was the worst 15 days of my life. They absolutely freeze you out of there. They won't let you stay underneath the covers until, like, when, like 4.30 comes in the morning. you got to get, get up, make your bed, get out of the covers, and you have to sit there for the rest of the day, and then 5 p.m., you're allowed to get back under the covers if you want. By then, you've already froze to death, just about. <laughs> I never thought in my life I would say that air conditioning was torture. Yeah, it was pretty awful. And I spent that with one of the other inmates that was uh, on that crew that day. Yeah, the um, DSC was saying that the actual gang sergeant came to speak to me about it because he was saying that because I gave them a thumbs up. I was supporting a terrorist group that they want to come and bomb the prisons. And I had to explain to them that if they bomb the prisons, they would be killing the inmates that they're there to support. So I don't know what you're talking about. And then I explained to him that one of his drivers, which was on a work squad, when one of the inmates went to give uh, one of the, the protesters fist bump, the officer actually hit the protester with the van, and there was a big deal about it. But that was the same day that I was videoed when we were out on the DOT crew. And the lieutenant, while our driver was on the phone with him, was suggesting that he brake check the person behind us that was following us to the next spot and smash their car. But he did not. Yeah, yeah. So they were, um, the officers were being very uh, abusive <laughs> in that respect. There's a lot of people that don't want to lose their game time, so it keeps the the problems down, so to speak, and there it keeps the fights down. I can say I have maybe seen one or two fights during my entire incarceration, and that's mainly because of the camp that I was put at, and uh, people are just trying to mind their P's and Q's for the most part. I'm very grateful for game time. It would be nice if it was less than 85%, like maybe 65 That would be kind of cool, but I don't ever intend to go back, so it doesn't matter to me. But I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that are that are there for just, you know, kind of small crimes that, you know, they've just had it handed to them in court, you know. Not everybody gets a fair deal in court. I was very fortunate, and I'm happy with 
my outcome, and uh, I actually chose to come to prison to wrap up my probation. So I came there with already, you know, a level head on my shoulders, and, you know, I accepted the consequences. So every day was a good day for me because, you know, I was there to learn from my mistakes and better myself, and I took advantage of what I could. I wish there was more to offer. They have a lot of school programs that are available, but uh, they don't seem to either have a teacher available or they say you're a short-timer. Well, I enrolled in a bunch of stuff and got nothing because I was a short-timer. I was there for 10 months. Well, when I first uh, got to the camp, they had me uh, going to a place called Takachali, which was a uh, a community for disabled people. It's pretty interesting. I enjoyed that. It was just like lawn maintenance, you know, keeping up the place and too difficult, long days. After that, that was up. They switched me to Gainesville Parks and Recreation. And I also got to see how the Gainesville City runs and their parks, which are designed for children, are overrun by the homeless. And I find dope baggies all over the place. And just, I never once seen a child playing on the playground the entire time we were maintaining them, which was very saddening. So uh, that was kind of good for me to see because it, it makes me want to uh, keep the parks clean for my child. So whenever I take my son out to the park or whatever, I think I'm going to probably bring a bucket and a little picker up her and uh, try and help keep that clean. Um, next place we were, I was, was uh, working for DOT, busting up sidewalks. And uh, that's uh, pretty labor intensive. I have a, a heart condition and it mattered to them none that I was out there with that kind of stuff. But I managed. I got it done. Uh, I did learn how to four sidewalks. That was interesting. Not my cup of tea, but it was something I learned. But uh, when I was on the DOT crew, uh, that's where I've seen some really wasteful spending with the state. They uh, fire up every one of their trucks just about every day and just let them idle all day, regardless if they leave the DOT compound and they just waste fuel all day. And when I said something about it, it was, oh, we got to spend it to get it. You know, we'll go out sometimes on some jobs and we'll just drive all the way out and sit in the truck for hours and hours and hours and do nothing. Um, but meanwhile, the officer is getting paid by the state to uh, babysit us while we're out there. So they're saying that they're saving money by using uh, inmates, but they're actually, in my opinion, wasting money. And a lot of us that are out there, some of them I can't speak for myself, but I mean, I can speak for myself, but I can't speak for them. Um, they just don't want to do anything. So they'll just stand out there, cuss, complain, flag cars for cigarettes. A lot of the people that are out there just come out to work just to flag cars for cigarettes, drugs, whatever. And as far as, like, when you're asking uh, coming back to the compound, it's uh, very dehumanizing. Um, I don't appreciate having to – I mean, I understand if we're going to leave the compound, we got to come back and strip. I get it. But just the way they go about it wasn't a good feeling. wasn't a good feeling. I don't like bending over. I don't like spreading it. Excuse me for saying that. But <laughs> really, if your rear end works, you're going to be able to hold something in there. There's a lot of people that go out there in the work squads and keister stuff and bring it back into the compound. And they bend you over hoping that they're going to see something. But if, if your muscle down there works, it's not going to come out. So I don't really see the point in doing that to us. I don't mean to be so graphic, but that's what's going on. And then there's some guards that will come in with a flashlight with, like, a little laser, and then they point it right at your bum. And <laughs> it's just – it's ridiculous. 
if if you want to stop the drugs from coming in the compound, just stop the work squads because that's how it's getting in. And there's a a cook, like a head cook. Um, she oversees the inmates in the kitchen. She's having uh, relations with the inmates at Gainesville work camp and bringing in cell phones and drugs and cigarettes as well. And she's already, I guess they've already said something to her and, and or she was questioned about it, but I guess they believe her over the inmates, which doesn't surprise me. But they kicked out a couple other female people that worked in the kitchen before because they have gotten caught for that. I guess one of them was trying to uh, contact an inmate or their family by Facebook and transfer some funds into their account. Something that effect. The only people that get paid at the work camp are people that work commissary, which never leave and never have to lift a finger. They get to stay in an AC room and watch television all day. And they've got like four different canteens in there for, for VP. they got inmate. Actually, no, it's three canteens. VP, inmate, and uh, officer canteen. So they get paid $50 a month. All right. And then they got a uh, car wash guy, which the officers pay to have their car washed, and then the car wash guy gets $50 a month. And I put in at both camps for that because I have 18 years detailing experience. I never once got it, but they gave it to a guy that has zero experience whatsoever. I got paid nothing. So I was a little little salty about that. But, uh, yeah, so those that do the least work and uh, hang out at camp all day and push their drugs get paid. Uh, a lot of the guys in the canteen – they won't sell you items or they'll say, oh, these items aren't in. But at the end of the day, if you really want them, they've got them. They'll bring it, but you're going to pay for it. You're going to pay extra for it outside of the canteen. And then they got people running stores in the camp where they'll buy up a bunch of stuff at canteen so that it's not there. But if you want it, you can come to them. And that's where a lot of the smuggling comes in because, you know, we need deodorant. There's some basic amenities that we need that's just not provided. And it's awful to sit there in your own stink. You can take a shower and still stink. And it's awful. So that's where the drug smuggling comes in because some people just want to feel good at the end of the day when they get done working. There will be times where we come in from work, sweaty, dirty. No, you can't take a shower until count. I don't particularly want to sit in soil that is blown all over me because I've been running a weed eater all day at all these different parks and have dirt all over my face and grass. I'm itching. and I don't have any pills for, like, antihistamines and things like that. So I got to sit there in my bunk, sweaty, make my bed dirty. You know, they don't change the – I think, actually, they just started changing the blankets more often, but uh, the blankets were only changed, like, every few months when they should be changed at least every month. The sheets they do every Thursday, but, you know, it's not the sheets that we sit on every day. We sit on top of our bunks. So that kind of sucks. The, the bathrooms are appalling. The bathrooms are the hangout spot. That's where everybody hangs out. So there's no no expectation of privacy in there. You go in there, everybody's sitting on all the toilets. You got to use the restroom. Well, that's tough because they're sitting there smoking their drugs. I've witnessed them smoking methamphetamines off a of foil while I'm in the shower. I've sat, I've been in the shower, and they've been on cell phones taking pictures of each other and posting it on social media. You know, when I'm taking a shower, I should have an expectation of privacy, and there was none. And then you got an officer, a female officer at Gainesville Work Camp that needs a psychological evaluation because she will turn around and say, why are you looking at me while they're in the shower and they're not? I've heard from multiple inmates that this lady has accused them of gunning her, which is uh, masturbating in the shower. 
And uh, when they weren't, and I know these people, and I know they wouldn't do such a thing because it's a huge charge in there. She definitely shouldn't be there. There's just so much, so much. And, and it's probably a more worse experience for those that have been there longer or have more time to go. I don't know what kind of words I have for that place. I, I'm very grateful for the experience because it uh, it helped me remember where I'm at and where I want to be in life. But I definitely don't want to do that again. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at KiteLine at wfhb.org. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.